Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to the Lawyer's Toolbox on ALR PRA Law Talk Radio. Today is Thursday, September 16, 2010, and I'm your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ALR PRA Incorporated, a national law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. We help manage our clients' business so they can spend more time practicing law. Today's guest is Chicago attorney Marcus Stephen Harris of the law firm of Marcus Stephen Harris, LLC, located downtown Chicago, Illinois. Mark, Mr. Harris is a founding member of the firm, and his practice is focused on all aspects of technology law and intellectual property law, including domestic and international trademark prosecution, trademark opinions, and counseling, due diligence, copyright, and trade secret law. He has an extensive experience in transactions involving technology, licensing, including software licensing, ERP, SCM, and CRM implementations, software development agreements, and also confidentiality matters. Mr. Harris was a senior corporate counsel in charge of all the intellectual property at SSA Global Technologies, where he developed and managed an extensive international trademark and patent portfolio, managing intellectual property litigation, conducting intellectual property due diligence, and also reviewing advertising material to verify compliance with legal requirements. During law school, Mr. Harris completed an advanced externship at the United States Copyright Office in Washington, D.C. Mr. Harris is a member of the Illinois State Bar Association, Chicago Bar Association, and the Technology Executives Club. Before we begin today, we want to remind you that we have two weekly law talk radio shows. First, the Consumer's Law Journal, which airs every Tuesday, and second, the Lawyer's Toolbox, which airs on Thursday afternoons. Both law talk radio shows air at 3 p.m. Central, which is also 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific Time. We do have a great show for you this afternoon, and we invite our callers' questions either by email at info, I-N-F-O, at A-L-R-P-R-A dot com, or also by calling in to area code 917-889-9732 and pressing option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. The telephone number, again, is area code 917-889-9732, option 1 to be placed in the queue. We want to let you know briefly about a contest that we have. All callers who, uh, callers or email questions are eligible to receive free admission uh, to the quarter, fourth quarter social media update 2010. It's a seminar that's going to be held here in Chicago and hosted by ALRPRA, and that's going to be uh, held, the morning session is going to be held October 21st, that's a Thursday, and we also have an evening session on Wednesday, October 27th. Regular price of admission will be $25, and participants not located in Chicago will be able to attend via webinar. Just by way of general disclaimer before we get going here, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary and are based on your facts and location. You're always encouraged to privately consult a professional and should be advised that the laws may vary from state to state as they could apply to comments made on this show. Comments made by callers to attorneys and other guests do not constitute attorney-client or other professional relationships. All callers do remain confidential, and the rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALR PRA Incorporated. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Marcus Stephen Harris. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm good, Nick. Nick, thanks for uh, having me on, and that was quite an introduction, so I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. 
Well, I appreciate the opportunity for you to share some of this information with our guests. I know that net neutrality is something that has been in uh, many of our ears and has been on all sorts of things on the Internet lately. So we're looking forward to you sharing a little bit about what is net neutrality. Tell us a little bit about the issues uh, and then explain to us why these are relevant to intellectual property. And by a quick preface, I'll tell you that uh, a lot of the word of, on the street that I've talked to people, many people very much enjoy the idea of free sharing uh, online, and I think many people assume that things found on the Internet are a free game and that they don't understand that these are these are protected assets of other folks and uh, intellectual property uh, of other people. I know so many times people will uh, click and use photos, right-click and save photos that aren't theirs, download songs, people are uploading, downloading movies, and they're not thinking about intellectual property. So net neutrality is going to be a good way, I think, for us to have a discussion here and learn why net neutrality is something that we should all care about or be aware of, and second, what it means to intellectual property and what types of things are going on with intellectual property so that uh, as consumers we can better understand and navigate the Internet as we enjoy our media and other things that are available. Well, no, I, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, I think net neutrality has been kind of a catch catchword or a buzz phrase um, over the last uh, really, you know, I'd say five years is when it's kind of come into into vogue, um, and lately with the um, you know the new position by Verizon and Google um, and some FCC issues that have happened earlier this year, it's really kind of come into the forefront. You know, and I think net neutrality net neutrality at its base really is far-reaching the concept, and it has the ability really to affect everyone that uses the internet. And if some of these regulations that are uh, being proposed um, by both you know uh, government agencies, namely the FCC, and um, some of these um, large media companies, say like Comcast and Google and Verizon, you know, to the extent that these people um, have their way with what they're proposing, um, it could have some very serious ramifications for the way that everybody um, actually uses the internet, um, and it also has some you know, relatively interesting and important impacts um, with respect to how intellectual property is going to be used on the Internet. Um, you know, before I think we get into kind of a real substantive discussion of, of net neutrality, I think it's, it's important to have really just a general understanding of what the concept means. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a debate now, um, and there's really kind of two sides to the debate. Um, so generally, net neutrality, it's, it's a principle that, that really underlies the Internet, and that principle is that all information on the Internet should be treated equally. Um, so generally, the, the Internet, you know, at its core has always been free, and it's always been open, and in many ways, the Internet is really the great equalizer in that individuals or an individual rather can have you know the same voice as say a fortune 500 company so you know the proponents of net neutrality want that that openness to the internet that's always been there to remain okay so proponents of of net neutrality would argue that the openness openness of the internet is essential for uh, continued innovation and it is really what has helped Drive sites, say like YouTube, uh, Facebook, and Skype, which are bandwidth-intensive websites, um, these proponents of net neutrality, they would argue that without 
the openness of the Internet. Sites like Skype, YouTube, um, and Facebook, uh, the, these sites really would have had a hard time getting off the ground. Um, they argue that um, tiered pricing, which is the other side of the debate, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, so tiered pricing, this is uh, you know, pricing that is essentially based on usage, traffic, and bandwidth. Um, would be really a deterrent to startups and entrepreneurs. So they, these proponents of net neutrality would argue that sites like YouTube and Skype may really have never come into existence or gotten off the ground because it would have just been too expensive for them to get started um, if, the, uh, if the Internet certainly wasn't open and free as it is today. Um, so on the other side of this debate, Nick, what you have is you've got really a desire by these internet, internet service providers um, to be able to manage their networks as they see fit. Okay, so, you know, if, for example, you have um, a Comcast that is providing you with access to YouTube, um, to BitTorrent, um, to Skype, and you're really using these sites in some kind of an excessive manner, Comcast would argue, well, you know, you you then user need to have um, some kind of a special model that allows us to charge you more uh, for the use that you're making of those sites. And it doesn't necessarily stop there. Um, you know, these Internet service providers are going to be charging the operators of the site as well, so for hosting the site, for example. So somebody like a YouTube um, is going to then be paying a lot more money to uh, their host, to their ISP, than you and I would, you know, for hosting our websites. Okay. The quick thing I see there is that YouTube is then going to start charging people to upload videos, and so you, Facebook as well. I could see that they would necessarily need to charge or increase or pass it on to their advertisers. Well, exactly. I mean, that's that's one of you know the fears of of the proponents of net neutrality is that somehow these costs are going to have to be borne either by the consumer or by the entrepreneur. And if it's borne by the entrepreneur, then what you have really is a stifling of creativity, a stifling of, of ingenuity and innovation, which has been the hallmark of the internet since it started. You know, so so it really is a serious debate, and it really will shape the future of the internet. Um, and you know, I think the most practical aspect um, that people will see if um, these larger companies have their way is that it will certainly result in more more expense. So instead of paying, you know, twenty dollars a month for unlimited internet access, you're going to have a variety of options. So for example, you'd be able to, you know, pay a fifty dollar fee and you get to, you know, download as many movies off of or off of Netflix or you can watch Hulu all you want. Um, but you know, if you can't afford that, then you get kind of the, the you know the, the dumbed down version of the internet, and you just aren't able to uh, make access of and use uh, some of these advanced features. But I think you've got to, you've got you know as as someone that's looking at this objectively, I think that what you need to do is you need to look at where these internet service providers are coming from. I mean, you know, they're stuck with what is essentially an an outdated business model. Um, you know, 
it's it's this a la carte service, um, or rather, all, it's all an all you can eat type of service. You pay this fixed fee, and you get to you know consume uh, large amounts of traffic. Um, so what they want to do is they want to be able to stop that from happening and charge people based on use, which... Well, why? Why? Is it, what's the burden? I mean, is there unlimited... Can you explain maybe some of the technological you know, reason why too much traffic or bandwidth? I mean, is, for the, you know, is that an unlimited thing? Why is there a limit? How is it affecting other things? Why should we care about traffic? Well, the more, the more traffic that, you know, one site is generating, the more, the more resources that are being allocated to that site. So the ISP really does have somewhat of a legitimate concern. You know, it's, you're getting more um, than what you're paying for, essentially. So that's, that's really what the concern is. From a technical standpoint, I mean, there certainly are issues. But I think the main driver in this is just for them to try to be able to capture revenue. You know, I mean, that's that, these are the models that these kinds of uh, media companies are used to. They're used to channeling your ability to use their their you know their outlets, and you know, rather than having this unlimited use, you know, they they certainly are, are more more familiar with this kind of pay you know pay for play kind of uh, scenario, and it's certainly all about really profits. Um, and actually, Nick, there's there's really precedent for this happening recently. Um, there is a case, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a Comcast case where Comcast was monitoring usage by its subscribers and it had found out that a number of these subscribers were actually downloading material from BitTorrent, um, which is a relatively well-known peer-to-peer uh, file sharing service. Um, this, the, the use was... Um, excessive, and it was causing problems uh, for the network, essentially. And one of the interesting things about these peer-to-peer networks is that they're designed to, um, you know, when, when, when the network activity on, on, on the network they're on is, is say, slow, they, they automatically go out and they try to seek out um, higher bandwidth. So it's, it's something that's difficult to stop, and it's this kind of, you know, uh, it just sucks up uh, bandwidth. So, you know, Comcast uh, was having some trouble with this, and what they did is that they uh, intentionally slowed down downloads and slowed down access uh, to BitTorrent by a number of their users. And then what happened is that a couple of pro- public advocacy groups decided to file uh, a complaint with uh, the FCC claiming that Comcast had really breached um, its, its obligations to its customers and had violated certain regulations of the SEC. So, you know, it, this is happening now. Um, companies are trying to do this, and so it's very much at the forefront of what is going on. And I think, you know, if, if this goes through, if these companies have their way, I think what you're going to be looking at, Nick, really is a scenario where, you know, rather than paying your $20 a month for your internet internet access, you're going to really be looking at something more like um, a cable provider where you've got your premium channels and those premium channels do certain things and provide you with certain access that these lower channels don't. Um, so, you know, I don't know what the average fee for cable is, maybe $50, $150, um, but, you know, your your internet access could actually, you know, go up um, exponentially based on what you're paying for today. Well, the, the problem that I see there is if they have different tiers of service, and one of, maybe this is a you know a concern where um, 
if you're paying different levels, I know on if you have cable, uh, you pay you know whatever package you get a number of channels, and there's a whole additional set of channels that you're not that you don't get, but you can see that they're there in the guide. But what about the internet? What if I'm doing a search on Google and I only have the basic basic package? Am I only going to be able to pull up the top tier companies? Well, we're not sure how they're going to actually implement it, but I would think that's probably a good assumption. I mean, I think you'd probably probably be able to see that it's there. Yeah, you'd be able to see that you know you you that, that Netflix exists and it's there when you do your Google search, or you may even even be able to put it you know go to the URL. But you know, some message would be displayed by Comcast, let's say, and I'm, we're not picking on Comcast; it's just the, the provider that uh, is kind of prevalent here in the Midwest where we're located. Um, now, so let's say Comcast puts up some kind of a notice on the website that says, hey, well, you know, Nick, you haven't paid uh, your, you know, uh, premium you know, Internet fee. Um, if you want to do that now, go ahead and give us your credit card information, and we'll put you on a plan, and you, you can have all the access you want to, you know, uh, Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is that you want to have access to. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's certainly an interesting model, and I think it's, an, it's a model that very much, uh, you know, wants to be replicated by, by uh, these companies, um, certainly. Well, that's uh, go ahead. That's that's one. That's one model. Let's pause for a quick sponsor break, and then uh, let's hop on, a, on another model and keep uh, exploring this. So we'll take a quick break here. We want to let anyone know who just tuned in or clicked to listen that they are listening to the Lawyer's Toolbox on Law Talk Radio, brought to you by ALRPRA Incorporated. Our guest today is uh, technology and intellectual property attorney Mark Stephen Harris. Uh, here in Chicago. Our first sponsor is attorney Nancy K. Ducharme. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity, call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. You can find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. By clicking the like button on the law firm's business page, you'll receive periodic blog updates with recent developments in the rapidly changing field of intellectual property law. Back now to the, cons- uh, to the Lawyer's Toolbox rather show. We encourage listeners to call in, and the telephone number for questions is area code 917-889-9732. Again, 917-889-9732 and option one to be placed in the queue. We know that uh, some listeners listen after the, after the shows and uh, do not have the opportunity to call in live and ask a question, but you can still send us your questions at info at ALRPRA.com, and we can forward those to the appropriate party or answer them on a later show. Again, now back to Marcus Stephen Harris talking about net neutrality. Uh, we quickly looked at some of the background and talked about the Comcast case um, and different uh, legal issues that have been appearing. Um, Marcus, let's continue. Yeah, so just kind of a, a brief recap. We talked about what neutrality, what net neutrality is. We talked about you know, the position of the proponents of net neutrality, and then we talked um, about you know, the, the counterposition and you know the, the the desire by large media companies to be able to manage their networks as as they see fit. What we haven't done or what we haven't talked about yet is really what you know the position of the FCC is on this. Now. The FCC takes the position that the Internet should be open and that it uh, should you know, be continue really, for the most part, the way it, it, it has been, that it should be open, that it should uh, promote creativity, ingenuity, and entrepreneurship. So, you know, it, it, you've got a government agency that is squarely in the camp of net neutrality, 
Um, and in fact, you know, in this BitTorrent case that we talked a little bit about, you know, the FCC actually thought that Comcast had really overstepped its bounds. They issued an order um, for, you know, preventing Comcast from really doing what they had done. Uh, it was somewhat moot at that point because Comcast had kind of um, moved on and um, had you know, gone into a little bit of a different direction that was more acceptable to the FCC. What is interesting about this case, though, is that the Comcast actually appealed the case uh, to the D.C. Appellate Court, and the D.C. Appellate Court found for Comcast. Now, it's, it's somewhat of a technical issue as to why they did that, and it doesn't have much to do with the, the, the merits of the case. Um, it's more of a technicality in that, you know, the FCC um, overstepped its, its uh, administrative bounds uh, to an extent. Um, so it's it's not much of a comment on you know the FCC's position, but more of a comment on you know the implementation of of that position, um, the FCC's uh, inability to do it uh, pursuant to their own uh, regulations. Um, one of the interesting things, though, about the FCC's position is that you know they have recently um, come out with a couple of different proposals um, and they've kind of coalesced and. What they what they're big on doing now is saying that you know there should not be any discrimination um, by any of these companies with respect to internet content that is uh, legal, okay, or lawfully used. Uh, so a lot of the criticism of the SEC's position is is really focusing on this concept of you know non-discrimination of lawful content. And, you know, these people, like, say, the um, Screenwriters Guild of America, um, some of the entertainment companies are saying, well, what about, um, you know, the illegal use of copyrighted material? You know, where does that really kind of fall into this whole structure here? And what, what if, if these companies are allowed to um, regulate the way their networks are used, you know, what kind of what what are they going to be able to do, or what are they going to do to the illegal use of of this material? Um, and you know they've they've kind of jumped on this, and I think maybe to an extent some of these advocacy groups kind of misinterpret the FCC's position. Um, you know they say, well, you know this allows for these companies to discriminate against my material, where you know I think that they kind of missed the boat. And the reason that I think that is that you you can. To the extent something's lawfully used, you can't really, you know, make any kind of changes or modifications to it or prevent people's access to it. But to the extent that something is not lawfully used, you can pull it, you can restrict people's access to it. So I think to, to an extent that can be a good thing. But I also think that, you know, that it certainly can open the door to free speech issues, um, uh, you know, it, uh, actions by law enforcement and, and the like, um, you know, there's going to be always kind of a dispute as to, well, you know, my material isn't really being used lawfully, and, you know, an ISP now makes that determination. And that's another criticism of the FCC's position is it doesn't define what a lawful use is and what an unlawful use is, and there's really no clarif clarification in their position as to who makes that determination. So I would assume that it would be left up to the ISPs, which you can see is, you know, could be somewhat problematic and open up kind of a can of worms there. Uh, certainly, if you're going to ask them to be self-governing, that's kind of a scary thing. And, you know, two questions pop up in my head as you're explaining some of the potential, uh, Im you know, impacts of this. Um, the first thing that pops into my head is how does the FCC 
even have authority to control the Internet because the FCC was set up for other, you know, radio and other wave communication. So it's a whole different ballgame here to, to start policing the Internet. And it certainly, you talk about opening up the door, I can see all, you know, entire new federal agencies designed to police the Internet. I mean, we're talking, you know, we're opening up Pandora's, Pandora's box here. Um, well, what are your you're, thoughts? you're exactly right. I mean, I think, you know, to address your first question, you know, how does the FCC, um, and, an administrative body that was, you know, implemented by Congress, I think, what, in the 30s or so to, you know, regulate transmission of broadcasts and, you know, telephone and, and things like that, which has then, you know, matured and, you know, is applicable to um, radio and uh, television, cable and things. Um, you know, how does it have the authority to actually regulate the Internet? Well, what's interesting is that, um, you know, the FCC made some modifications to its own guidelines which really kind of got it into trouble and prevented it from trying to um, regulate um, Comcast in the BitTorrent decision. So, you know, the, the FCC has kind of made its own bed and it's caused its own problems with respect to its uh, enforcement and regulatory initiatives. Um, they're trying to change that now by making a change to the definition of, um, you know, what constitutes, let's say, um, you know, Internet provider, the provision of Internet services and things like that. They, you know, they, they want to be able to regulate um, the transmission of uh, Internet. And uh, so that's one of the ways that they're going, going to try to get around uh, some of the things that they've done to themselves. They've got this kind of ancillary jurisdiction over things, um, but the court um, in the BitTorrent case really wasn't buying it, and that's why that case didn't move forward. Um, so they do have some challenges, and we're kind of in uh, a murky gray area right now, which is one of the reasons I think that you know this Google and Verizon policy position has come out to try to put some some clarification onto you know where things are going, and um, you know to to give some direction to the industry. Um, and as far as your your last question, I mean just you know the explosion of regulatory efforts. I mean I think. Um, or monitoring efforts. I mean, I think that's a real big concern, you know. Um, I think to a large extent these companies can, you know, do a lot of monitoring themselves, but, um, you know, it's it's really left to be seen, and, and no one really does know what's, what's going to happen. Um, one of the things I wanted to kind of talk about, Nick, is, is really kind of just delve into in kind of a, a summary manner of what, what, you know, the Google and Verizon position is, because I think it's interesting, and I think it kind of frames the debate. Um, and it's it's interesting for a variety of reasons, and one of the things I think is it's, it's a little bit self-serving to the position, you know, that they find themselves in. Um, so to just kind of summarize, um, Google's and Verizon's position on net neutrality is that an, an open Internet really should be preserved while allowing network operators, the flexibility, and the freedom to manage their own network. So you can see they kind of want to have their cake and they want to eat it too. It's, they're coming out on both sides of, of the policy debate. Um, but really, when you kind of delve into it, um, it's not really that way at all. So you know, their proposal includes really nine suggestions, and the majority of those proposals deal with wired networks as opposed to wireless networks. And that's kind of a key thing if you want to understand the Google and Verizon position on this. 
So these, these nine suggestions, I'll summarize them, um, not all of them, but just some of the more relevant positions. They include things like, you know, an ISP can't block any lawful traffic. So you see this lawful concept coming back in. Um, an ISP can't block any lawful traffic regardless of the application or the service that's being provided. So there isn't really any objection to that. Um, that's really kind of right where everybody is. Um, one of the other things that they, they are advocating is that an ISP can't discriminate, discriminate against any traffic or content that would harm users or competition. And again, there's really not much that's objectionable about that position. So you can see that they're kind of, you know, right with everybody else with this concept of net neutrality. Um, the other thing that they say is that ISPs need to be transparent and they need to disclose how they are managing their networks so that consumers know what is and what isn't allowed on, on an applicable network and they can make informed decisions about which network they actually want to use. So all of this makes sense, okay? But I think what is the most significant thing about this is that almost all of these apply only to the wired network space. So Google and Verizon don't want net neutrality, arguably, to be applicable to wireless broadband, okay? Now, they've got certain reasons for that, but I think it's significant. So they're all on board with net neutrality with respect to wired networks. So if you've got your, your computer plugged into a wall, you know, Google's all for your net neutrality and you being able to do whatever you want. Um, but the minute that you go wireless, um, they have some issues with that, and Verizon certainly has some issues with that. Um, I think, you know, they do a good job of, of making it palatable, and their arguments certainly can seem reasonable um, when you don't think about them too much. And I think some of those arguments have to do with, well, you know, it's we're trying to transmit things wirelessly to your phone, and, you know, we, we can't clog up the network with massive downloads. So, you know, you're, you're going to impact um, other users of that network, and you see this with AT&T all the time. You know, AT&T has got the iPhone, and, you know, all these iPhone users are always complaining that the network just is slow, that drop, it drops calls. So, you know, mm -hmm. this is a real concern. Um, but at the same time, you know, this is, the, this is where the industry is heading. You know, the days of the wired connection um, are really um, going to be gone soon, and everything is really going to this wireless world. Um, you know, how many times are you in your office with your laptop, and you're not, you know, you're not plugged into anything. You're just, you know, using your Wi-Fi network. Um, right. So, I mean, it's if they're really kind of talking out of both sides of their mouths. You know, they know which which direction the industry is going, um, and they want to have arguably the ability to you know monitor those networks and be able to do what with those networks what they will. But you know, remember that the underlying you know rationale behind this, uh, regardless of, of what they say, because they've certainly got reasonable arguments, but it's all about revenue generation and being able to charge you you know these different tier structures and you know okay well you, you want to start watching Netflix on your phone while you're on the train okay well you can do that but you've got to pay you know extra extra for that um, and you know they don't do you think as do 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 you think as consumers that we're being greedy and expecting all this for free? Well, you know, I think it's hard to change. I mean, the way the internet has been, it's been it's been around for many years and it's always been this way. So I think, you know, it's it's hard for people to make a transition to, you know, some kind of a tiered structure. Um but to answer your question, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think people are a little bit, um, you know, you can call it greedy, you know, but they want they want to continue to get what they're getting and it's hard to take things away from people once they've got it, 
you know, and charge them for it now. Um, and I think in some of these scenarios, it really does kind of, you know, make sense. You know, the underlying you know, rationale for these guys is, hey, well, it's our network. We developed it. You, know, you didn't. You're using it, and you're using it in such a way that it's impacting our ability to provide service to other people, so we need to generate more revenue from you. You know. It makes sense, and it does make sense, and I think that people will. My gut is that people will pay, um, and because people are used to their creature comforts, and you start taking things away, and people, you know, are just get so used to things. So, very interesting dialogue. We'll be right back with Marcus Stephen Harris to talk more about net neutrality after we pause for our second commercial break. For those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to the Lawyers Toolbox on ALRPRA's Law Talk Radio. Our second sponsor is Attorney Jim Thompson. If you want to get clients now, he's the one you need to talk to. He's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach, and his program called Get Clients Now will help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Jim is going to be a recurring guest on the Lawyer's Toolbox show regarding attorney marketing. To learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit MidwestConsultants.net and also check out his testimonials on Facebook by searching Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by visiting MidwestConsultants.net. Reminder to our callers, if you have a question for Attorney Marcus Stephen Harris or a comment on net neutrality or any of the issues, uh, in today's show, please dial area code 917-889-9732. Again, 917-889-9732. It's option one to be placed in the caller queue. And also, if you are listening to the broadcast uh, after the fact, you can certainly uh, ask us your questions by email at info at ALRPRA.com. Again, info at ALRPRA.com. As we've been going through the show today, I've been receiving uh, messages uh, from people on Facebook who uh, are generally making comments that, of course, it's another way for the uh, companies to charge us more money and they're, you know, everyone's charging more money. And those are a lot of the comments that are out there. Um, Mark, do you think that what, I mean, where, do you, do you, where do you think this is really going? Do you think we'll really end up paying for these? You said it's sort of a good idea. What about the aspect of intellectual property? And, and um, you know, can, I don't want to derail you know where you're going with our discussion here, but um, can we talk a little bit about the intellectual property considerations? Well, well absolutely. Let, we'll, we'll talk in, in, in substantive detail about some of the intellectual property considerations because I think they're interesting and they're interesting from a liability standpoint, and it kind of shifts shifts some of uh, the status quo. Um, in the whole Internet service provider liability area um, with these tiered concepts. So I want to talk about that, and I think it's interesting. But let me key in on something that you just brought up right before that break. You know, and, and sure. you asked, well, is it a good idea? Um, you know, do you think people will pay more for this? You know, I, I kind of come out on, on, on this where you do. And I, think, I don't think it's a horrible idea necessarily. I think you've got to balance it with, you know, free speech considerations, competitive issues, um, and then you need to really think about, you know, the detrimental impact you're having on innovation and creativity. Um, so if you can balance all of those things, then, and, and this is what Google and Verizon are trying to do to an extent, 
you know, I think that you know this can be a good thing, and, and here's one of the reasons why. I think you know not everybody needs you know the Cadillac of, of of internet service. Okay, you know some people just need to check email, they just need to look at a few things, um, and for those people maybe you know the price would actually come down, and, and some of these companies actually make that argument. Um, you know if if they are able to charge you know the um, site operators you know the Googles the Skypes the Facebooks um, more money and then they're also able to charge their customers um, more money for access accessing these high bandwidth uh, sites you know there's more money to invest in infrastructure there's more money um, to uh, kind of spread around so you know you're going to get arguably a better internet um, and for many people it would be at a lower price Okay, so you know, that's one of the arguments they make. Um, how reasonable is that? I don't know yet, but it certainly sounds um, like it's possible, and I think it's a viable, a viable argument. Um, time will tell. But you know, I think too, you know, you've got to think about what your needs are as a user of the internet. Um, if you are a uh, bandwidth-intensive user, you're looking a lot of vi- a lot of videos, you're downloading a lot of uh, audiovisual files. Um, listening to music, um, you may want um, some custom-made sites that really make those those uh, uh, applications very slick. You know, you may be willing to pay $150 a month to just have you know these uh, you know great websites and this great access that uh, you know other people just aren't willing to pay for. Um, so, and I think I agree with you, Nick, that people will you know people probably will do that. So. Um, it's not necessarily as bad as it could seem. I think you know what you need to be really worried about is you know these. Uh, if, if there is no government regulation, and in this case, I think you need to think about it as you know the government is actually the regulation that the government is is proposing in this kind of a scenario is a hands-off kind of regulation. So you know these these companies then aren't able to you know do with their networks what they will. It's just going to be open and neutral as it is today. Um, so you know once these companies start um, Monitoring their databases, or excuse me, their networks, and and um, you know providing access the way they want to, you know, it, it could really cycle competition. And you see this, you know, with uh, Apple and Flash, and you know these companies that don't play nice together. And you can imagine what kind of havoc that could reach, you know, uh, in the internet. So it, it could be incredibly problematic. Well, the, I think a lot of the concerns that people have are the small business owners with the website. You know, for example, um, you know, we had before we converted over to the name ALRPRA and Incorporated, we were a sole, uh, you know, a sole, the sole prop uh, company for several years. And from 2005 to 2008, our page rank was at 195,000 or something, and we had to start over and we were worried that people weren't going to be able to find us and you know for SEO and other concerns other people have expressed to me their concern that if this if if there is regulation um of the internet that the small business websites are just going to be harder to find and no one's going to be able to find us well it's a real legitimate concern i mean i think you know that's where the fcc is coming out on this and this is where you know these proponents of net neutrality are are, are coming out on this as well i mean you know like we said earlier when we started the show you know one of the, the greatest things about the internet is that it's a level it's a level playing field. I mean, you can have a sole proprietorship, and it can have the same voice as a Fortune 500 company, and it can make the same impact, you know, via its blog or its website or whatever. Um, in you know the, the shifting landscape that's being proposed, you know, who knows if that's going to continue to be the same? 
And if it's not, it really is kind of a shame, and it really kind of, you know, impacts the, the Internet um, in a negative way, and I think that really would stifle, you know, creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship, um, which are some of the tenets of the, of the Internet, really. Um, you know, you'd asked about intellectual property um, and how, you know, some of these issues might impact intellectual property. And I think from a legal perspective, certainly for an intellectual property attorney like myself, it really is pretty interesting, okay? Um, you know, for a very long time, we've had what's called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA. And under the DMCA, ISPs um, were shielded, really, from liability um, to a great extent. You know, there were some takedown provisions and some safe harbor provisions um, that really went in, in favor of ISPs. And the rationale at the time was that, you know, we don't really want to hold ISPs liable um, for infringing activity unless they actually know about it. You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. This was when the Internet was relatively new and it was perceived, perceived to be somewhat vulnerable. Well, that's not such, that's not so much the case anymore. The Internet has matured um, and, you know, I think uh, some, some positions are certainly um, a little bit different today. Um, so, you know, one of, one of the interesting aspects in this debate um, is the impact it will have on copyrighted material. So traditionally, Nick, you've got these peer-to-peer -peer sites like, you know, BitTorrent, which we talked about, and then you think, kind of go back, Napster, Kazaa. Um, you know, these, these types of sites have been notorious for the unauthorized distribution of copyrighted material, okay? So sites like these, they use large amounts of bandwidth, and um, you know, these are the sites sort of that really are prime targets for the tier pricing that um, these media companies would like to implement. Okay, mm -hmm. so you've got to think about this. An ISP's desire, really, to manage its network as it sees fit and charge higher fees to users of large amounts of bandwidth, while that initially seems to kind of coincide with the interest of, of copyright holders because, you know, it seems reasonable that increased fees would actually reduce the amount of, you know, this unauthorized file sharing. Okay, and this may very well be true. It may have that impact, and I think there are some arguments um, to that effect. Um, but you've got to realize that, you know, an ISP's desire to charge higher fees um, in a scenario like this can actually conflict with the interest of copyright holders. Um, so, for example, if you have an ISP that is generating higher revenue from these sites, these, these large bandwidth intensive sites, you know, that it's getting higher revenues from, an ISP certainly has an incentive to simply look the other way, okay? There isn't an incentive in this scenario, in this new world that's being proposed, um, for an ISP to monitor and actually reduce access to this unauthorized material. Instead, an, an ISP really has an interest in providing greater access to bandwidth um, which would then arguably make it easier uh, for people to distribute copyrighted material without authorization. So it's kind of an interesting twist, and it does kind of change the game a little bit, okay? Um, and I think you've got to understand that, you know, ISPs are going to publicly say that they are against copyright infringement, um, but the unauthorized distribution of copyrighted music and, and audiovisual works, it, it really does drive 
much of the demand for their services. So their broadband services are built upon this stuff. You know, that's why the broadband Internet has really taken off. You don't see dial-up anymore. Um, I talked about the digital millennium copyright, and traditionally under the safe harbor provisions that we talked about, you know, the ISPs have been sheltered from copyright infringement liability when they just don't know about uh, infringement, infringement. They don't know what's going on. You know, so it, traditionally they've had uh, this kind of a limited responsibility um, and really no interest in copyright enforcement because it didn't serve their needs. Um, you've also got to understand there's a difference between, say, you know, a host ISP and a transmission ISP, okay? And some, in some cases, these, these two ISPs can be the same, and in other cases, they can be different. So you've got, you know, the Comcast, which is really a transmission ISP, and then you've got, say, a host ISP, which might be somebody more similar to, say, like a GoDaddy or something. Um, and it has been generally acknowledged that these transmission ISPs, this is the way it has been, you know, to date, that they have really kind of a limited liability, limited ability to, to really know about, you know, copyright infringement. It's kind of similar to, you know, a, a provider of telephone services and, you know, whether they know whether crimes are going on or, or you know, being talked about over their network, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so with that background in place, the the impact now and what changes the landscape is that this tiered pricing or this tiered priority that is being proposed, it actually exposes ISPs to what's called vicarious copyright infringement liability. Okay, um, vicarious liability for copyright infringement. What is it? What's vicarious liability? Well, vicarious copyright infringement it arises when the right and the ability to supervise the infringer coalesce with an obvious and direct financial interest in the exploitation of copyrighted materials. Okay, which is right in the wheelhouse now. And before it, no, it wasn't necessarily. Okay, I mean, you provided access and you didn't generate any additional revenue based on, you know, copyright infringement. And in fact, in that BitTorrent case, you know, they actually lost revenue. Comcast arguably would lose revenue because, you know, now, um, you know, more more network resources were being um, diverted to uh, the BitTorrent, you know, subscribers. And Comcast actually had, you know, the desire to slow that down. Okay, here you've got the opposite effect. You know, now because, let's say, a Comcast is making more money from, you know, these bandwidth-intensive sites that, you know, are well-known for the unauthorized distribution of copyrighted material, you know, they've got an incentive to just look the other way because they are, you know, making money from it. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's, I think it's generally acknowledged that these ISPs certainly have the ability to control the infringing activity. Okay. Um, again, this is what happened in the BitTorrent case. Um, the technology is certainly out there. Um, you know, you look at YouTube. YouTube has implemented it to great effect, and it pulls infringing material all the time. So these ISPs certainly do have the ability to control this or to stop it, okay, which is one of the elements of this vicarious liability concept, okay. So, you know, if an ISP meters this usage and the amount of usage increases with the unauthorized downloading of copyrighted materials, and then they do nothing to stop the infringement, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a boom in vicarious liability lawsuits against ISPs, okay? So now you've got to think about, well, what's the practical impact on that um, to the Internet and to users? And I think what happens is it, it really makes things somewhat administratively burdensome, okay? Ultimately, what you end up having 
are increased costs. You now, you know, need these ISPs need to have, you know, potentially cost prohibitive insurance to shield them from, you know, liability. Um, you've got lawsuits happening. You've got, you know, monitoring that needs to take place now actively. Um, and what, you know, who pays for all that? Well, you know, we do. Um, so, you know, undoubtedly an ISP is going to make that same argument we were talking about earlier that, well, you know, these increased, these increased costs probably are going to be minimal and it's going to be absorbed and it's going to result in increased infrastructure improvements and, you know, it's going to provide a better um, experience for all Internet users, but I'm not so sure. I mean, I think that, you know, once you change the game like this and you have, um, you know, you've introduced a new concept and a new way to sue these ISPs because they now are, you know, financially, they have a financial interest in, in the unauthorized distribution of copyrighted material, you know, it's really a game changer and it really just kind of changes the way that everything, um, the lay of the land and, and um it's it's certainly interesting from an intellectual property standpoint and as an intellectual property attorney. I mean, you know, if if this net neutrality uh, kind of goes to the wayside and these large media companies are allowed to, you know, set up their, their networks the way they want, I, I guarantee you that there's going to be an increase in, li- uh, in lawsuits and you're going to see a lot of uh, provider liability, um, or at least the defense trying to argue there is no liability. So it's interesting stuff. Like- like we said, opening Pandora's box. Let's pause for our third sponsor break. For those of you who have just tuned in, you're listening to the Lawyer's Toolbox on ALRPRA Incorporated's Law Talk Radio. Our third sponsor is credit damage expert George Finder. Yes, the man can put a dollar amount on damage to credit. He's one of the few people in this country who can do this. Attorneys and plaintiffs who have used his services in the past have earned large damage awards in various practice areas, such as personal injury, employment law, family, and general civil litigation. By learning to incorporate credit damage questions in the intake process, you and your staff will learn how to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. Right now, any of our listeners who contact George Finder and tell them that they heard about him on ALRPRA's Law Talk Radio will receive, free of charge, one hour of CLE presentation. So grab a pen and take down this email address to respond to this offer. The email address is creditdamageassociates at gmx.com. Again, creditdamageassociates at gmx.com. Available nationwide, Credit Damage Expert George Finder's website is full of resources. Please visit creditdamageexpert.com to learn about George Finder and his expert services. Again, for anyone tuning into the show who wants to call in and ask a question for our guest, Attorney Marcus Stephen Harris, who's talking about net neutrality and intellectual property law, you can dial in by calling area code 917-889-9732. Again, 917-889-9732, option 1. We also take your questions via Facebook or email at info at ALRPRA.com. Back to Mark Harris for our remaining 10 minutes. Mark, is there anything uh, that you – we actually we have a caller here. If you want to go ahead and take a caller. Sure, absolutely. All right. Caller, you're live. Go ahead. Hi, this is Ryan from Chicago. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Pretty well. Um, I have a question for you related to net neutrality, but not necessarily related to um, the impact on law or intellectual property, really more in regards to the cost to small business if we don't have some kind of legislation um, requiring net neutrality. I mean, would you expect um, small businesses, well, particularly small businesses that pay um, for their Internet services now, would you expect their costs to go up 
I mean, it seems likely that um, they would be required to pay some additional fee for premium content if that's kind of the way this goes. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? I think it's it's most likely going to go up. I think if you were to talk to these Internet service providers, they would say, well, no, you're, you're incorrect. It's actually going to go down for the majority of our customers because you know, these are not high bandwidth users. But, you know, it all – the devil's in the details. And if these guys are free to determine, you know, or define, you know, what constitutes high bandwidth usage, you know where that's going to go, you know. They're going to define that as broadly as possible. And, you know, if you send a certain amount of emails every day or whatever, you know, whatever you do um, – you're going to be impacted. And I think small businesses really may be disproportionately impacted by this because I think it's small businesses that really leverage, you know, the Internet um, to, to really run their businesses efficiently and, and inexpensively. I mean, it's a small business that uses voice over Internet protocol. It's a small business that uses Absolutely. Skype, you know. So you, you can bet that, you know, those kinds of things, Skype and, and you know, Wipe and, and the like are going to be classified as high bandwidth usage, um, and you know online videos, which is where things are going. You know all of those things. So yeah, I think small businesses would get hit disproportionately by this. And I think you have, uh, I mean, from my experience anyway, um, you know you have a lot of small businesses, small businesses that are increasingly hosting their own servers, too. and so they are like already have this demand for higher bandwidth um, all the time. And um, I think this could only hurt the matter. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, I think it, it yeah. really could be detrimental. And again, you know, you've got to balance these things. You've got to balance, you know, the desire of um, of these large media companies to manage their networks. And I think they have some reasonable arguments and some reasonable positions um, with with the impact on you know everyday people and the ability for them to leverage the internet. Um, to have a voice and to use it for innovation and creativity and entrepreneurship. I mean, you, know, you, you don't want to stifle that. Right. Well, I agree. Thank you very much. Thanks, caller. I have got your number. I'll follow up with you for your free admission to win the social media um, conference. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Hey, Mark, do you want to talk anything about a little bit about um, – we have seven minutes left. Do you have uh, other points you want to make, or do you want to talk a little bit about First Amendment again? Well, let me make a couple of other points, and then let's certainly go back sure. to the First Amendment, because I think that's a really interesting issue, too, and how that impacts everything here. Um, you know, I think you've got to, you've got to you know, from the legal perspective, you've got to think about this vicarious copyright concept. Um, and it really does kind of change the game, in my opinion. You know, I've got, you've got people like the Software's Guild of America, and we can lead back into the First Amendment because I think it fits nicely with some of their issues. You know, they, they argue that, you know, that, that the regu- regulations restricting the ability of an ISP to manage its networks would actually discourage the development of anti, anti-piracy technologies and would really have a negative impact on, on you know, their, their, uh, their business. You know, and they argue, well, we've been hit the hardest. Um, and I'm not so sure that really follows. You know, I think if, if you look at it from this vicarious liability lens, you know, it is now the ISPs that have, have the, the incentive now to, to really monitor usage and, and make sure that there is an infringing usage and that they're not benefiting from it. So I'm not sure where the Softwriters Guild of America is coming out on that. Um, but, you know, it, it, it seems kind of like an uninformed position, to be quite honest with you. You know, one of the other arguments they make, and this kind of relates back to the First Amendment issue, um, is that you know by only preventing the lawful uses um, from discrimination, you know that 
the, the illegal uses of, of copyrighted material can be discriminated against. Okay, and so it's all about who who makes the determination about you know what is lawful and what is is not lawful. And you know, like we were talking about earlier, that's just ripe for a variety of issues, and certainly First Amendment issues. Very interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what happens. You know, I've been thinking about my own use right now, um, and then one of the things that's very common now are some of the applications on social media, and I know that uh, you have a blog recently published on that talking about the concept of motion and mo you know mobility plus uh, social media, and a lot of iPhone apps have that. I do not have an iPhone. I have a BlackBerry, and I know that BlackBerry's network is secure, and all my friends who have iPhones are constantly having problems and reporting that things aren't working right, and now the same thing with some of the 3G and 4G Android phones. People are saying, you know, this isn't working, that isn't working, and it's just too much bandwidth and all these downloads. So, I, you know, I would take that step if I knew, you know, and get, you know, maybe transfer to a different provider if I knew that things were going to work properly because as they are right now, things are not working properly. And I remember people saying that it was because we had new area codes, you know, right. in the in the north, you know, the northwest suburbs that there's too many area codes now or something, or too many fax machines. I mean, you know, it's gotten gotten to a point where it's almost ridiculous. Well, and see, this is, this is an argument, for, you know, against net neutrality to, to some extent. I mean, you know, AT&T would say, well, you know, Nick, if you want, you know, I, I, who's, who's your wireless provider for your BlackBerry? Sprint. Sprint. Okay. Well, so let's use Sprint. Sprint would say, well, Nick, you know, if, if you let us manage um, you know, the network the way that we want to manage it so that we can, you know, um, provide the services to you in the way that we think they should be provided so that we can, you know, give you the usage that you want, you know, if we're allowed to do that, then you're not going to have issues. That, you know, that's, that's their position in a nutshell, okay? But, you know, what they, what they ignore when they say that are all these other issues, the First Amendment issues, um, the impact on intellectual property, you know, the impact on innovation and creativity and, and what that does to everybody. So it's, it's a balance. You know, if you want your, your BlackBerry and your Android phone and your iPhone to work, you know, um, you might have to give up a little in order to, to get uh, some, some better service. Um, you know, proponents of net neutrality would say, well, you don't have to give up anything because, you know, the market was just, is just going to let it kind of, is going to, you know, figure it all out, and you know those those providers aren't going to be around anymore because they're providing bad service, and you know everything should be open and free and neutral, and you know the providers that can do that are the ones that are going to benefit the most, and so so it's interesting stuff. I look forward to seeing what's going to happen with some of these things as uh, cases continue to get filed and constitutional arguments are continually made. Um, I know that uh, some people have said that there's a fear of large corporate America having too much control and uh, sort of controlling through uh, morality, through you know, through money, and um, you know, really trying to drive consumers into the direction that they want us to go. Um, so it is going to be interesting, and I think I agree that you know this is opening the door to a lot of things. So we look forward to uh, hearing things in the future, and I, I look forward to having you back on the show to talk about uh, this and other issues that pop up. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to talk about. You know, we, tons of interesting things that are that are kind of collateral to this issue and intellectual property, and like you said, you know, free speech and constitutional issues. So it's a, it's definitely definitely a hot area to keep keep an eye on because it's going to impact everybody really in the next few years. So. It's uh it's it's interesting.
Very much. Well, thanks for being on the show today. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it, Nick. It was a lot of fun. Um, thank you very much. All right. We'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in to the Lawyers Toolbox on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio. We'd also like to thank today's sponsors. One, the Intellectual Property Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Two, Jim Thompson of Midwest Consulting Group. And three, credit damage expert George Finder. Again, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on the show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary based on location. To con- con- consult with a professional in the area of which you have an inquiry. Again, comments made on this show are general information, and comments and advice made by guests are not intended to produce attorney client or the professional relationships. Callers remain confidential, and rights are preserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Again, ALRPRA Law Talk Radio's mission is to bring our attorney and non attorney audiences the tips, tools, and practice area information they can use to be better informed practitioners as well as consumers as we all navigate the always evolving practice of law. With guests and listeners located nationwide, we uh, appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. ALRPRA's underlying values are transparency, flexibility, and humility. We are a full management agency available nationwide when professional quality matters to your firm. Thanks again, and please tune in to our next show. We always appreciate our callers, guests, and questions uh, to the telephone number and email address provided. Again, this is Nick Augustine for ALRPRA Incorporated, and we thank you for your time.